Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Romans chapter 4 as we continue in the teaching series that we began several weeks ago as, as we're studying Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And this is one of the section, chapter 4, that we're going to be in this morning, is one of the passages that over the years I go to frequently in order to help realign my faith. And I, I've been praying that this morning it would be a blessing to all of us as we are looking at God's Word. And with that said, can we all stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to be looking at most of chapter 4 today, but right now I'm just going to be reading verses 18 through 22. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come together. Uh, What a wonderful gift you have given us to be able to come together as your people, as your church. We're gathered together in the name of Jesus in order that we might hear your word. And Holy Spirit, as we continue forward this morning, I ask that you would do what only you can do. We ask that you would illuminate our minds, that you would illuminate our hearts by the word of God, that we would gain a deeper understanding of your word, and that we would be transformed in such a way that we live lives that glorify Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, today, as we are going to be drilling into the topic of genuine saving faith, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I want to begin, I want to set up today's passage by asking you a question. I want you to consider this or think about this. Have you ever, have you ever been scammed by somebody? Have you ever, in other words, have you ever put your faith in someone and only find out that they were a fraud, a con, or a fake, and it cost you greatly? I'm sure that, you know, all of us can relate to uh, being, uh, putting ourselves, our faith in somebody and being scammed, kind of like a Ponzi scheme. I don't know if you know what a Ponzi scheme is, but it's a a type of of fraud where investors take their money and they they give it to, to someone and they are led to believe that they are investing in a product that is going to be sold. And they believe that from the sales of the product, they are going to get a return. 
The reality is there are no products in this, in a, in a Ponzi scheme. What, what's happening is, is the money that you might get back is actually the money that other uh, investors put into this f- scheme. If you're having a, trouble following me, raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to give an example of what a Ponzi scheme might look like. Let's suppose that I'm a scammer. Okay, let's don't do that. Some of you think that I am anyway. All right, let's suppose that someone comes to you and says, hey, give me $1,000, and in a year, I will give you back 10% on that money. So in a year, they would have to give you back 1000 Thank you, Todd. You seem to be like someone that knows money for some, you know, knows how to do this. So in a year. Now, so I give them my money, and what this scammer will do is later we'll try to find other people later later down the road, let's say Susie, to give him the same deal. Maybe she gives him $2,000. Now he has $3,000 from which he can take from, and at the end of the year, he can take from that and give you your money. And his scheme is is to find more investors so that when Susie's note comes due, he can give it to her. But it has to be enough people that will give enough money that they can live off of it or scam off of it while making you think you're getting an investment back. Um, I was surprised to discover that a Ponzi scheme got its name from, uh, actually got its name from a lifetime swindler by the name of Charles Ponzi, who in the early uh, 1920s, he promised his clients a, get this, if you're an investor, this is mind-blowing, but he gave them a 50% return on their money in 45 days or a 100% in 90 days. It sounds too good to be true, Warren, doesn't it? It does. If something sounds too good to be true, except for the gospel, it is. So he's, he's, um, he said that he was investing in what was called discounted postal reply coupons, when in reality, he never purchased one and was paying earlier investors with the money from later investors. And initially, this scam, people were getting their money back, and this scam spread like wildfire, and multitudes put their faith in Ponzi. And there's, there's stories, sadly, of widows who would mortgage their houses and take everything and put it in, hoping that, uh, that they would get a return. And there's, people that, there's records of people who took their life savings, their retirement, and just gave it all to him, um, hoping that they would get rich quick. And for a season, this seemed to be a genuine deal. But in the end, it collapsed, and Charles Ponzi ended up going to jail. And countless investors lost millions. But what stands out to me about this story is that there were some who, even after Ponzi went to jail, they held on to their notes, thinking, with faith, thinking, when he gets out, I know he's going to be true to his word. And as you may imagine, he never did. And the point I want to get at here is that they had faith. These investors had faith, but it was a misplaced faith, and it cost them greatly. Now, what I want to do is I want to bring that story, that thought over into today's message, where we're going to be looking at Abraham's faith, which was not a misplaced faith. His object of faith was in the one 
who was, is not a con artist that could fail him, but rather in the God, which we already read, who was able to do what he promised. Abraham put his faith in the God who was able to do what he had promised. Abraham had a, a kind of faith that pleased God, and his faith was counted, as we read, to him as righteousness. And so as we're going through this passage this morning, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Do you have the faith of Abraham? Or, or do you have the faith that pleases God? And it, it matters. It, this, what I'm teaching, what Paul is teaching in, in Romans chapter 4 really matters because not all faiths are equal. There's only one type of faith that saves There's only one type of faith that pleases God. And you know what the good news is, is that Paul uses Abraham as a real-life case study for us to examine this morning, to see what what that faith really looks like, and to see if we possess it also. And so if you're taking notes, I have several gospel truths from our passage that that are actually earmarks of what genuine saving faith looks like and what it produces. So, number one, Genuine saving faith produces humility. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter uh, of 4 and work our way down. Look at verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, I want to read that, that last section one more time about Abraham believed God. Would you all read that with me? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, just as Paul said earlier in verse 1, Abraham was the father of the Jews, and just as a reminder of, of the story, we went over this years ago in, in the book of Genesis, if you were with us and you remember this. But you remember that God came to Abraham and he said, listen, I'm going to bless you and Sarah. And from you shall come a, a descendant who descendants will come and a na- great a nation will be birthed. And that nation is going to bless all the nations of the world. And what does it say? Abraham believed God. He took God at his word and God counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted is a, an accounting term uh, that means to uh, give, credit, give, give credit to that person, on, um, to kind of like pour into their bank account. Uh, righteousness. So he was given righteousness. How? Not by works, but by faith. And Abraham was, if you know anything about Abraham and the Jews, he was highly esteemed among the Jews. And they saw him as a man of righteousness. But Paul, right in, this, in, chapter, in verse 2, brings him down to our level when he implies that Abraham couldn't boast in his own works. In other words, he also, Abraham also needed to be justified because his works weren't enough. And like us, Abraham had to humble himself. Genuine saving faith produces humility. Abraham had to come to a place where he realized he couldn't do what God required him to do. 
And you know, true faith in God, if you have true faith in God, it always begins with humility. Always. Um, That's because it requires us to come to a place where we no longer trust or believe in ourselves. Now, that is countercultural, isn't it? Um, how many movies, how many commercials, how many motivational speakers stand up and say, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. You've got, thank you. You've got this. You can do it. True faith humiliates our egos because it requires us to admit, you know what the truth is? I'm not enough. I am not enough. I am weak. I'm not titanium. I'm aluminum foil smushed on the ground. I need God. That's what true faith says. So let me ask you this as we're moving forward this morning. Are you aware that you're not enough? Are you walking in humility and trusting in God to do what you cannot do? Or are you still walking in arrogance, going, no, no, I can do it. I can do it. Genuine saving faith produces humility. Secondly, it produces rest. Verse 4 through 5 says, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. If you go, if you're working with, uh, for an employer and you work, say, 40 hours a week at uh, $2,000 an hour because that's what they're paying nowadays, at the end of the week when they give you your check, that is not a gift. You earned it. But, verse 5 says, but to the one who does not work, doesn't stop there, but believes in him, and here's such good news, it's almost unbelievable, who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is that saving faith, when we fully trust in Jesus alone, produces a rest within us, which causes us to cease from trying to gain God's approval, his love, through being good enough. We cease trying to make things happen in our lives, in our own strength. We rest. When we fully trust in God, when we fully trust, listen, that God really, do you really believe this? That he really justifies the ungodly through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, when we really, truly, fully, wholly believe this, it frees us from working. It frees us from the anxiety of trying to make things happen. It produces a rest within us. Now, that does not mean that we become passive and inactive and unproductive because as I've walked as a, as a believer and as I've talked to other believers, that's a question that comes up a lot of times. Like, how do I rest but work? Which, which one is it? And, um, 
Jesus, it doesn't mean that we are passive, inactive, and un- unproductive because in John 15, Jesus says that everybody that abides in him, everyone that, that has faith in him, that believes in him, that's a, like a branch uh, in the vine, everyone bears much fruit. They live lives that are productive. Everyone who has this kind of faith. So, so when we say that we uh, fully trust in the work of Jesus, we realize that everything necessary for us to be right before God has, be done, has been done for us by Jesus, and it sets us free to work from a place of rest, a place of gratitude, of thanksgiving. I'm not trying to, to, to get God to love me anymore or to please him. I am, am serving him, working because of what he's already done, out of gratitude. There is so much difference to work from a place of rest versus anxiety and selfish ambition where I feel like I have got to make this happen or else it's not going to happen. You know, as we're talking about Abraham, if you remember the account of Abraham, he actually did not always walk by faith in this situation. If you remember, he saw, heard the promise that you're going to have a baby, and he looked at, initially looked at uh, Sarah and said, well, this ain't happening here. So she said, here, take Hagar. And the Middle East has not been the same since then because Ishmael came and war has been between Abraham and his, his uh, Israeli descendants uh, with the Palestinians. But my point is, is that in the end, Abraham does Walk by faith. So sometimes we can try to make God's promises happen in our own strength. If you find yourself this morning, you're like, oh, that's what I'm trying to do right now. And you know what you do? You confess it, you repent, and walk by faith. But this, is, uh, this rest that God gives us allows us to worship him even in the midst of trials and adversities. I want to give you a, a real-life situation from a mission, uh, two missionaries that ministered in the 1800s who served in the New Hebrides on the island of Tana. And they, they went there, and they, their names were John and Mary Pat, Patton. And there were cannibals on the island. You talk about uh, a difficult situation. This is beyond difficult. I mean, especially if your neighbor said, you want to come over for dinner. You don't know what they're really asking, but that was a joke, and that was hilarious, and you all are not laughing. Come on. Okay. But anyway, uh, three months into them uh, arriving there, Mary, who was pregnant, gave birth to a son, and tragically, they both um, contracted tropical fever and died. And John buried them near his cottage, and, and it says that he, he says that he spent the nights sleeping over the grave initially to protect his, his family from, from the villagers. And at one point during his time, as he was sharing the gospel, as he was serving Jesus, hundreds of natives came in against him with muskets and knives. They were out to kill him. And there was, uh, as he's fleeing, there's a guy he could kind of barely trust that said, hey, go up in this tree right here, and I will divert them another direction. When they are gone, you can come down and go to a boat that's waiting for you. And that's exactly what happened. Now, years later, John writes about, in his autobiography, he writes about this tree experience. And here's what he says. The hours spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet, 
I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow. As I told all my heart, I love this part, as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Even in the face of potential death, John is saying that his heart rested knowing that his Savior, who had died for him, was with him, consoling him. This morning, church, are you, can you say that in your situation that God has you? Are you resting from your works? Are you resting in your Savior? Or are you anxious? Do you feel like, man, you, you still got to make something happen? I want to encourage you to trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. Genuine saving faith produces humility. It produces rest. Thirdly, it produces happiness. Now, in order to make this point, Paul is going to point to the greatest king of Israel, David. He's going to use him as an example. Let's look at verse 6 together. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I'm going to read that again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, oftentimes I have heard Christians say, and I have said this also, you've probably heard me say it from the pulpit, God calls us to be holy, not, okay, you haven't heard it, not happy. God calls us to be holy, not happy. And, and the point that when, when me or, or, or uh, Pastor Terry say this, the point that it's being made is that, you know, life circumstances fluctuate, don't they? Um, and the Christian life often can be difficult. We don't want anyone to come to Jesus and think that your life is just going to be happy from here on forward because of your situations. So following Jesus often brings trials, and so we shouldn't think our life will always be a, as Forrest Gump says, a box of chocolates. But let me ask you this. Wouldn't you agree that um, we should be holy as God is holy? I mean, Scripture clearly says that. But let me ask you this. Do you see, when you think about God, do you see God as being happy? Think about that. Do you see God as being happy? Do you serve a happy God? And I ask this because in our text, the word blessed, blessed or blessed in verse 7 and 8, it pertains to being happy, implying that, listen to this, you're enjoying favorable circumstances. 
Being, in other words, being happy because of your circumstances. And so I'm going to argue from this text here that if our faith is in favorable circumstances, is if, our, if we're believing in favorable circumstances that will never change, we can indeed live a life that is marked by happiness. And what are the favorable circumstances in this passage? Here it's this, knowing that our sins have been forgiven and are never going to be held against us by the Lord. Ever. Our circumstances in Christ will never change by faith. In Christ, we will always, listen, in Christ, we will always be declared righteous. That should make you happy, shouldn't it? Um, what, let me ask you this. What would your life be like if you really, fully, completely, within, without any shadow of a doubt, believed that truth? You would be, or you are, because you might be, I hope we are, you would be the happiest person to be around. Now, it, are you? Okay, don't ask the people that are around you. Am I a happy, you know, am I typically a happy person? If the answer is no, and it might be, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean you don't have uh, saving faith. But it could mean that you have forgotten that in Jesus, your sins have all been forgiven. So, Genuine uh, saving faith produces humility, it produces rest, it produces happiness. Number four, it produces hope. Look at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, I want us to notice I highlighted two hopes in, in verse 18. There's two hopes that are there. Number one, the first one is a biblical hope grounded in God. And then the second one is a human hope. Uh, when it says against hope, it means that humanly speaking, there was no hope. Humanly speaking, uh, for Abraham and uh, in himself, as he looked at himself, there was no hope within himself to fulfill the promises of God to have a child. When, did he, when, when is this talking about? It's when he's 100 years old, isn't it? Biblical hope, however, produced by faith, always trumps human hope because it is not dependent upon man's abilities, but rather on God's, on God and his promises, which are more certain than the rising of the sun. Now, when we speak of hope, when you and I speak of hope, we often can say things like, you know, uh, I hope it snows today so that uh, I didn't do my report and I don't uh, for school, so I hope it snows, but I'm not sure if it will. Or I hope that my children turn out good when they get older. Or, you know, I hope that the economy will do well so that my investments will prosper. Or I hope that my team wins today. That kind of human hope, it has a, a desire to it but, it, but it's grounded in uncertainty. You don't know if that hope is going to come to pass. That's not the hope that, that Abraham had. That's not the hope that faith produced in Abraham. He was certain that God's promise to make him into a great nation would come to pass. He, he 
it was um, something in the future. He had a deep confidence that, that expected the desire to be fulfilled. John Piper puts it this way. Biblical hope is not a mere desire for something good to happen. It is not the lip-biting gaze as you watch the place kicker go for a field goal in the last 10 seconds when you are down by two points. Biblical hope is a confidence, is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. That's the kind of hope that Abraham possessed through faith. That's the same hope that we can possess through faith. Full faith when we trust in the promises of God. And so again, before we move on to the next one, do you possess this kind of expectant hope this morning? Or are you uncertain about whether or not God is going to make good on his promises? Well, we've seen that genuine saving faith produces um, humility, it produces rest, it produces happiness, it produces hope with certainty, and lastly, number five, it produces continual worship. Verse 19 says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, Sarah's to, uh, womb. I guess, yeah, <laughs> her womb was a tomb, so... That's another sermon, actually. But verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises, the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, true faith, if you have true faith, it's always going to get tested. You might want to write that down. If you have true faith, it's going to be tested. Testing always comes because God allows dark and difficult and discouraging situations to come in and test to see whether you really are trusting in him. I remember uh, six years, seven years ago when we decided we were going to plant Reach Life Church. At first, and this is, what, this is a, a pattern of faith also. At first, it scared me because I'm like, there is no way I can do that. And then I had faith in God. I can do that through Christ. So we move here. And, you know, it's funny before you step out in faith, the, the kind of things you think about, you know, all the baptisms we're going to have. We're going to turn Asheville upside down with the gospel. There's going to be so much that goes on. And then God tests you. He allows trials. He allowed trials, and he still, he still does. And it, 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 it's difficult, isn't it? And you, there comes a point where I had to ask myself, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And faith always brings me back. Yes, this is what God told me seven years ago. And I'm, re I'm reminded that it is by him that I'm going to continue forward. That's just an example. I'm sure that all of us, 
can give examples of that, how you've stepped out in faith. You're ex- maybe scared. You're excited. Now you're tested. And, and true faith is always tested. In those times, we can either look for an easy way out, turn to something else, or we can turn to God in faith and worship him with endurance. Did you hear that? True faith empowers us to worship God now, right now, even while we're in the midst of unwanted circumstances. Right now. Abraham teaches us that that we don't have to wait until Sarah is pregnant, until we see the promises coming true. That that's not that actually that's not faith. That's sight. Faith allows us to worship God right now. That's what Abraham learned. And and he looked at his humanly impossible situation, and in faith he began to reason. I need you to hear that part. He began to reason. Faith that pleases God is not opposed to reason, but rather it is built upon it. Here's what uh, Paul Tripp says about this. Here's what biblical faith does. It examines reality, but it makes the Lord its meditation. It is only when you look at life through the window of the glory of the one who has been the source of your meditation that you see reality accurately. The more you meditate on your problems, the bigger and insurmountable they seem to be. Meditating on God in the midst of your trouble will remind you once again that the God to whom grace has connected you, magnificent in his grandeur, grandeur and glory. He is infinitely greater than any problem you could ever experience. Saving faith does not deny reality. And it also involves reason. That's reasoning. And here's, I think, what Abraham did. 100 years old, right? He looks at himself. He looks at his broken down body. Then he looks at his wife, uh, and she's in the same situation. And he, he thinks to himself, the facts are, This is against hope. I can't do that. But he doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the facts about God. I I wasn't there, but I'm going to assume that he looked and said, you know what, God, I know that you created everything. Verse 17 says that God calls into being things that do not exist. And in the beginning, when God created everything, he created everything out of no- from nothing. He brought everything into existence when there was nothing. And, and Abraham probably reasoned, you know what? God can, since God can do that, he can easily cause a baby to come out of Sarah and from me. He reasoned. And he reasoned that it was more reasonable to believe God than to doubt him. And as he considered God, it says that he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. He worshiped him. 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Again, he worshiped God before God fulfilled his promises. That is faith. And so I just want to close asking you this. How big is your God? Really what I'm asking is, do you see him as he really is? We were talking about this in MC last week in missional communities, and it came up that God is infinite. He's not big. He's infinite. He has no boundaries. His wisdom is infinite. His power is infinite. His love is infinite for us. And my question to myself, my question to us churches, is your faith in him, in him alone, or are you worshiping something lesser? A problem, a, a, a trial, or something taking you away from the greatness of God? Well, how do you know if you have the faith of Abraham? Well, as I've already said, it'll produce humility in you. It'll produce rest. It produces happiness, knowing that our sins are forgiven. It gives us an expectant hope. And this one that I love, it allows us to worship God right now. And I'm talking right now, this moment. You can start worshiping God right now when you have faith in God. You don't have to wait for the music to play or an invitation. You can begin to trust God right now. It pleases God. You know why it pleases God when we believe him? Because when we don't, we're saying he's lying. He's saying you can't really do that. But when we do, we're saying you're telling the truth. And so the problem is not with God, but with our view of him. And so I just want to encourage us all. Um, A prayer that, that you can pray is, God, open my eyes to see you. You're greater than my mind even conceives. Open my eyes to that. Meditate on his scriptures. And then be in a community. This is what we preach all the time. Be in a community that can help stir you up and point you to God. All of us can have the faith of Abraham. You know why I know that? Because in verse 23, it says this. This is how Paul closes chapter 4. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, may we fully put our faith in the God who was able to do what he has promised because that is the most reasonable thing we could ever do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you again uh, for your word. I praise you for this example that you've given us through Abraham, that we all can walk by faith, that we all can have the same faith that Abraham has if we will just simply trust in you, if we will believe what is true, what is reasonable, and that you, that is that you, the God who created all things, loves us, 
that you died for us. You sent your son to die for us. And that we also have a future in you when we put our faith in you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to worship you right now, not to wait any longer, but to trust you in whatever situation we are in, that you may be glorified through faith. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.